Penn American Center back to school special. Um, nobody can really prove this, but as the fall 1992 semester moves into full swing, <coughs> it seems uh, clear that more students at more colleges and universities are taking more courses in more creative writing programs than ever before. I've seen estimates that range from 150 to 300 plus uh, such creative writing programs and, and departments. And the difference probably can be accounted for by the distinction between degree granting programs and others. A higher percentage of American writers of fiction and poetry emerge from such programs and a higher percentage teach in them to earn a living or part of their living. The academic institution of creative writing courses, simply put, looms larger than ever in the landscape of contemporary American literature. As any working editor or literary agent can tell you, this has created a boom in the population of people who consider themselves writers. Uh, but whether this boom might also hold within it the potential of a literary renaissance, or a golden, or even a silver, or even a bronze age, is a complex question indeed. Uh, sub specii aeternitatis, however, it's the only one that really matters. Thus, the title of this panel, Are Creative Writing Programs Good for American Writing?, is being posed in the largest sense. Uh, tomorrow at Town Hall, there's a symposium being staged. Uh, it's either the death of the novel, the life of the novel, or the life of the novel, the death of the novel. But whichever way it is, uh, surely creative writing programs um, uh, will be fully implicated in the uh, novel's eventual fate. Anyway, to continue in this academic mode, this is an essay question, not true, false, or even multiple choice. And we have assembled a panel of speakers who have all worn multiple hats in their time within the literary industrial complex to explore the contours of this question. I'll introduce them now, conclude uh, with some prefatory remarks, and the games uh, will begin. Uh, from my left, your right, uh, Ted Solitaroff is the founding editor of the American Review, which from 1967 through 1978 was simply the best literary magazine in the English language. Uh, he was also an editor of Book World and at Commentary, uh, he wanted me to mention that, uh, and worked as a book editor at Bantam, Simon & Schuster, and Harper and & Rowe, latterly Harper Collins. He has taught creative writing at Columbia, Yale, UC Irvine, Berkeley, and the CUNY graduate program, and is a contributing editor of The Nation. Um, Next to my left, uh, Dan Halpern has done everything. He is a poet with a long, long list of book publications and honors, and he also writes beautifully and authoritatively on cooking and food. He is the editor-in-chief of the Echo Press and the literary magazine Antaeus. Uh, he ran the Columbia Writing Program from 1986 uh, through 1988, and he still teaches there. He has also taught at the New School and Princeton University. To my immediate left um, is Barbara Grossman. Where are you, Barbara? Uh, I lost you. Bygone. Barbara Grossman is the publisher of Scribner's. She uh, attended the Iowa Writers' Workshop um, and graduated with an MFA in 1975 in a rather legendary class that also uh, included uh, Alan Gerganis, Bob Shikochis, and Jane Smiley. Um, she has worked as an editor at Crown Publishing, Simon & Schuster, Harper and & Rowe, and Penn. To my immediate right 
is Virginia Barber. Here we go. She is the head of the Virginia Barber Literary Agency, mm -hmm. uh, which has been doing business since 1974. She holds a, a PhD in American literature from Duke and taught literature at Columbia Teachers College. Uh, her agency's clients include Alice Monroe, Michael Chabin, Marty Lineback, Rose Ellen Brown, Peter Mail, and Ann River Siddons. And at the far right um, is James Walcott, who is currently a staff writer at The New Yorker. Before that, he wrote the mixed media column at Vanity Fair uh, for several years. His essays and reviews appear in such publications as The New Republic and The Village Voice, and his criticism has the ability to make people laugh and to get people upset, usually not the same people. Um, he doesn't even have a BA, let alone an MFA. Um, my name is Gerald Howard. I'm an editor in the trade department of W.W. Norton. There and at my previous editorial position at Viking Penguin, I have published a good many works of fiction by graduates of creating creative writing programs and teachers in them. I have never taught creative writing, and I took only one course in the subject in 1970 as an undergraduate at Cornell. I remember almost nothing about the experience except the instructor's memorable stricture, I don't want to read about your acid trips. <laughs> <laughs> Immediate writer's block. <laughs> um, I've been telling people about this panel over the past few weeks, and it is interesting to me how universal the assumption has been uh, that we are somehow setting up the institution of creative writing programs for a public drubbing. Uh, this is, I assure you, uh, simply not the case, uh, but it betrays some sense abroad in the land that creative writing programs may deserve such treatment. Uh, their success in sheer quantitative terms has bred some skepticism in the community of people who care about American literature that the qualitative indicators are keeping pace and, uh, and a suspicion that the whole job program aspect uh, of creative writing programs may equal the pedagogical in importance. It has also bred an extraordinary self-consciousness among those writers who teach and make their livelihood in such programs. Uh, the AWP Chronicle, the newsletter of the Associated Writing Programs, the professional organization of creative writing teaching, is currently devoting two full issues to a symposium entitled Tradition and the Institutionalized Talent, and they don't mean Ezra Pound. Uh, the September <laughs> issue contains an essay by Scott Russell Sander, who teaches in the writing program at Indiana University, titled The Writer in the University, that raises, and in some cases cops to, almost every objection you might think to lodge against creative writing programs as a putative seedbed for literature. Uh, to quote him briefly, as a writer and professor of literature, I live with an acute awareness of all these dangers, that literature may shrivel in an arena of hostile theories, that deep and original work may be lost in a flood of the merely competent, that self-indulgence may be mistaken for creativity, ignorance for inspiration, that talking about art may be mistaken for making it. After this gloomy recital, I feel the need to say, as Mark Twain said of Wagner's music, it's not as bad as it sounds. This is not a new development. Uh, the worry that university positions are not 
uh, good for writers is coeval with the post-war influx of American writers of every stripe into academes. And you can find some probing and mildly ironic pages on creative writing courses in Malcolm Cowley's 1954 survey, The Literary Situation. Uh, but the questions are emerging uh, with greater force and urgency as poets and writers without MFAs and or teaching positions become a scarcer and scarcer breed. Uh, so to me, the following in discussion will have to take place between two poles, two points of view, perhaps impossible to reconcile. Kurt Wolf, one of the greatest of all 20th century publishers and uh, significantly a European literary man forced to emigrate uh, to the United States during the war, uh, where uh, he founded Pantheon Books, wrote to his author, Boris Pasternak, on the occasion of his winning the Nobel Prize in 1958. Uh, uh, Wolf uh, said in part, the reaction of readers here to Dr. Zhivago has been a pleasant surprise for me. I will try to explain why. The ability to judge quality properly has almost been lost. Every college and university in this country offers courses in creative writing. People are seriously convinced that creative writing can be taught and learned. And indeed, the students do learn something, the craft. Bad novels are amazingly well-crafted here. Manufactured, certainly, but well-manufactured. As a result, a good craftsman is taken for a genius, and the geniuses, who are usually poor craftsmen, go unrecognized. Your novel is not manufactured. It is, quote, merely, unquote, a work of genius. Some years later, Richard Hugo, uh, himself a superb poet and one of the best teachers of creative writing ever, with a, a stellar list of such uh, students as James Welch, Rick Dean Marinus, and Bill Kittredge to prove it, wrote an essay in defense of creative writing classes. With characteristic verve and charm, he wrote, creative writing's not new. For around 400 years, it was a requirement of every student's education. In the English-speaking world, the curriculum for grammar and high school students included the writing of verses. In the 19th century, when literary education weakened or was dropped from elementary and secondary education, colleges picked it up, all but the creative writing. Creative writing was missing for 100 years or so, but in the past 40 years, it has returned. It was never really missing, just missing from educational institutions. Writing is hard, and writers need help. Pound was a creative writing teacher for Eliot, Williams, Hemingway, and Yeats. Yeats, by Pound's admission, was Pound's creative writing teacher in return. Nothing odd about that. If we creative writing teachers are doing our job, we are learning from the students. If we are writers as well as teachers, we are also stealing from them, and they from us. As long as people write, there will be creative writing teachers. It's nice to be on the payroll again after a century or more of going unemployed. <laughs> Our five panelists will range over the large terrain uh, between these uh, two remarks in seeking to illuminate and perhaps even answer the question that gives this panel its title. And I'm going to begin with uh, Ted Solikaroff. And uh, since uh, since you are probably the senior member of this panel, um, I'm going to ask you to orient us historically. How did this exponential growth of creative writing uh, courses happen? Uh, where did writers of literature come from before creative writing programs? And what forces have made the university the major production center, uh, sector for such writers today? Hmm. So I'm sort of like Bill, the 
Faulkner, I've seen the beginning and see the end. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as Gore Vidal recently reminded us, um, before there was the MFA program at Columbia, there was Columbia Pictures. And lots of important as well as unimportant writers worked for Columbia or MGM or Warner Brothers. <coughs> In fact, of the pre-war big three uh, of the American novel, um, two of them, Faulkner and Fitzgerald, were writers in residence uh, at the Hollywood studios. And so off and on were Clifford Odets and Lorraine Hellman, uh, Dorothy Parker, Nathaniel West, John O'Hara, John Steinbeck, and da -da -da. even Bertolt Brecht washed up in Hollywood at one point. I imagine that there were even panels put on by the Screenwriters Guild in the 1940s uh, pondering whether screenwriting was good for American writing. <laughs> and there was also journalism. Newspaper reporting with Al Hemingway and Sinclair Lewis and Dreiser and Ring Lardner had all got their start. Uh, the typical course of a career uh, of a novelist, 20s, 30s, and 40s, was first journalism, then uh, literature, and then if you got um, famous, there was the Saturday Evening Post uh, or uh, the New Yorker. Um, and the, the difference though was that you had to uh, make it before you got the rewards of anything like a living wage. And uh, the typical course of a career was in journalism was a lot more arduous uh, than the present day one. Seems likely to me that there were more mute and glorious Hemingways uh, embalmed in booze at the copy desks of the Boston um, Globe or the Baltimore Sun than there are on the gravy train today as it passes through Johns Hopkins or Boston University. By the time my generation, post-30s, post-war one came along. The two, the two main options of journalism and screenwriting uh, were viewed as intensely problematic. In fact, we commonly referred to them as selling out uh, and prostituting your talent. Catchphrases of our youth. <laughs> um, the Spartan literary ethic I was raised on uh, in the early 1950s was that if the New York Times or Esquire um, called, don't even pick up the phone, which was the one easy instruction we gave ourselves. Enamored of the struggles and the vocational purity of Thomas Wolfe, that's the earliest Thomas Wolfe, not the biograph of Park Avenue, uh, of, uh, of James Joyce and Faulkner and Henry Miller toiling away in Paris. Um, young writers in the 1950s were probably the last specimens of the Puritan ethic in America. After a few years in the garrets of New York and Chicago and San Francisco, there really wasn't much else for us to do except to go back to graduate school, which we did in droves. 
When I was at the University of Chicago in the late 1950s, so were Philip Roth, George Stein, George Starbucks, Robert Coover, David Ray, also Thomas Rogers and Richard Stern were there having come from the PhD program at Iowa. The same was true of most of the good universities from Cambridge to Berkeley and even of the not so good ones. Graduate school became the writer's option. Henceforth, writers would make their way and earn their living on the campuses. Fortunately, there were plenty of openings since the American universities were expanding rapidly in order to accommodate the baby boomers who would be coming along in a few years. So it was that in the early 1960s, the vocational ethic of the writer began to change quite sharply. As Lewis Cronenberger put it at, at the time, writers used to um, sell out at 40. Today, they sign on at 25. Uh, one of the seminal texts of this transition was a book called Making It, which came out in 1967. His pulse placed firmly on the finger of the New York literary intellectual community, uh, who were by then the fathers of much of the liberal, radical tribe of writers. Norman Podhoritz announced that the, quote, dirty little secret of the literary life was that writers lusted for money, fame, and the love of beautiful women, just for men, just like everyone else. The self-consciousness of Podhortz's combination of a confession and an advertisement, as well as the intense resentment that it evoked, are both indices of the terminal stage of the otherworldly view of the literary vocation. Can you imagine a writer today, in the era of the book tour, when even a class market writer like Alice Walker says she doesn't really need an editor, just give her a good publicist, thank you. Um, <coughs> uh, can you imagine or it being anything like a big deal for a writer to say that he or she is interested in making money and being famous? But like the stint in Hollywood at 2500 a week, which went a long way back in 1928 or even 1948, the money doesn't come usually until the fame does, along about the middle of a career, with some notable exceptions. Which is where the writing programs come in. They solve the age-old problem of how writers are to support themselves, other than by exhausting and or dispiriting uh, hack work while keeping alive the idea that a literary author is something more than someone who signs books at Walden or might get on the Charlie Rose show. However, as always, there are consequences. Gore Vidal, we'll come back to him, uh, has, has said that he learned to write about otherness and to develop his objective capability by writing in the dream factory of America, which gave him very, a very laser-like access to, the, to the, the dream life of, of American society, as well as forcing him to write about everything except himself. That most writers today make their living by teaching writing, which is mostly a very personal and subjective way of earning a living, 
and relating to one's time. There might be some correlation between that and the withdrawal of interest of fiction writers from the public's dimension of experience and the concentration on the more or less private individual life. On the other hand, there's never been a fourth or a tenth, I don't know, whatever, as many interesting writers of fiction today, uh, there's never been a, a fourth or a tenth in America as there is today. I keep being bowled over by stories, mostly in the New Yorker, by writers I've barely heard of uh, or ha don't, haven't heard of at all. And I don't think that this would have happened without the writing program. Well, I think we'll want to explore that uh, social dimension later on in, in the panel. Uh, um, my next question is to Barbara. Uh, what were the catchphrases of our youth? Do you remember? Um, uh, <laughs> uh, you uh, you attended the the Iowa Writers Workshop, which was the granddaddy of them all. I, I think it was the first one founded in thirty seven, thirty eight. Uh, maybe you could describe for us the the experience that you had in Iowa in the seventies, which seems to me on the cusp of the transformation that Ted described, uh, and possibly comment from your perspective as a seasoned. Uh, editor, publisher, uh, the adequacy of that training for the challenges of the writing life, of which you've seen plenty. Um, my expectations going into the program at Iowa um, really reflect basically what, what Ted has already talked about. Um, I was looking primarily for time. I was looking for contacts. I wanted to meet writers. I wanted to meet publishers. Uh, and underlying it all, I wanted to get, and we all wanted to get, what was um, described as a terminal teaching degree, the MFA. It was a way for those of us who weren't quite uh, committed enough to the academic life to go on and get a PhD, and yet who couldn't quite tear ourselves away from the academy to kind of live in both worlds, and uh, for those of us who wanted an MFA also to find out if we had the right stuff uh, to be writers. Um, and I think what the workshop gave me and what the workshop gave uh, a collection, uh, Jerry's discussed it a little bit, I was in one class, one year's worth of intake with Jane Smiley, Alan Greganis, Doug Unger, um, P.C. Boyle, um, Richard Bausch, Richard Wiley, uh, and about a half a dozen other people who have published fine novels but have not been reviewed on the front page of the New York Times. It was an extraordinary group of people, and um, therefore it was a perfect opportunity for the rest of us <laughs> to figure out that we didn't have the right stuff to compete with the people who really were going to be the, the finest writers of our generations and to scurry around and try to figure out if A, we wanted to teach, or B, if there was something else we ought to be looking into. But those two years out of the world were um, an incredibly valuable commodity, uh, especially because we had the excuse of knowing we could always fall back on this degree, this terminal degree, and get a job teaching somewhere. Teaching somewhere was probably going to be 18 sections of freshman English at 4 o'clock in the morning in, in, in North Dakota. But it was a job, and there weren't a hell of a lot of jobs, there especially weren't a hell of a lot of jobs in the academy, 
when the baby boom generation hit it. Um, uh, what, in, in retrospect, I see the preparations uh, for the life I've led and for the life that my friends who went on to write were, um, well basically was, uh, we, learned, we learned how to make friends um, with some very prickly difficult characters and the loyalties that I've seen uh, remain to this day between those writers, the friendships, the Thanksgivings and, and Christmases and, and Rosh Hashanahs spent together by the people in my class and the classes surrounding me astonish me because of what I also know about the competitiveness between most writers. Um, so we formed communities, communities that have withstood 15 and 20 years worth of time uh, and, and established correspondences that go on to this day. We um, also formed a, a network of, of, of kind of job support. Um, half the people I know have given jobs to the people that we went to school with or have gotten jobs from the people that we, we went to school with. And a job was something that we were all looking for. Um, and I think it also gave us, um, and I, I say this without judging it in any way, um, it, it provided us with a sense of belonging to an elite. And I use the word elite the way my undergraduate um, professor, Robert Kelly, wonderful poet and novelist, used it, which is simply a group that that pulls itself outside of the mainstream. Um, becoming a part of, of that kind of a group enables us to, uh, to write, to, to do something that we were pretty sure was not going to provide us with a means of support um, and that had very few compensations outside of our relationships with these other people who were also engaged in that same activity. Pretty important stuff. I always knew the Elysian Fields were located in Iowa. It sounds, uh, it sounds ideal. It was. Um, uh, Dan Halpern, as a writer, editor, publisher, teacher, and administrator, you probably have the most panoptic view of creative writing programs. Uh, knowing all you know, uh, how did you go about structuring the curriculum of the, or shaping or changing the curriculum of the Columbia Writers Program uh, to prepare students for the writer's vocation? and uh, the writer's career. I think those are two distinct things. Uh, and considering how close Columbia is to the throbbing radioactive center of American publishing, or as Ted put it, the red-hot vacuum, uh, were these two areas ever in conflict? Um, it was my idea to couple the actual writing workshop that was the center of the program at Columbia and the center of the programs around the country in which student work is discussed in detail, form, content, and intent, the seminars, classes that were taught by writers or critics sympathetic to writers as well as writing for writers, which is to say classes that read texts with the writer in mind. I wanted our students to understand the nature of style, consider the importance writers of this century and others, and also a variety of large subjects that seem crucial to developing writers, but taught from a non-academic perspective. For example, I asked Elizabeth Hardwick to teach a course on the Bible, and we had classes on literature and translation, 
Last on Dante's Inferno. Proust taught by Edmund White, an ongoing prosody seminar, and a class in which the students wrote a short review each week, ending with a review of their own collected writings. The idea was to make certain the students had a chance to talk and think about the most important authors and themes with experienced writers and among their literary peers. As for the proximity to the Red Hot Center, I think that was the phrase that I, I, I heard the first time, but mm -hmm. now it's changed a little bit. It's getting hotter. <laughs> I don't see any conflict, really, especially now that it's it has cooled substantially beyond our attempt to indirectly communicate that while the realities of publishing to survive as a writer are and continue to be ever-present, it is imperative that students write without worrying or thinking overly about trends in publishing, which, like the tides, change with each incoming bestseller. <laughs> That although publishing in the ideal world would reflect what's being written, in fact, publishing often dictates the kind of writing that will find its way into print and ultimately into the budgeting hearts of the marketing department, which in turn bows to the imagined collective taste of the reading public. The examples of writers who eventually broke through are many, but my two favorite examples are Cormac McCarthy, who published five novels with Random House, and until a few years ago was unknown to more than a few literary aficionados. An example of a writer who just continued to write and let the publishing world and the reading public catch up to him. And the other, Ray Carver, who wrote just like Ray Carver for all those many years before he became a writer acceptable to trade publishing a writer who turned out to be as much an influence on the style of the American short story as Borges. In the course on publishing we offered in the late 70s, our goal was to give students a sense of the way publishing really works, from agents to reviews. Well, we didn't tell them everything. And then expected them, with a quick, gentle push, to enter the world running or writing, as it were, looking neither left nor right, but rather straight ahead in the direction of the heart, the writer's bullseye. Um, Ginger, you visit uh, a lot of creative writing programs and writers' conferences and such. Um, especially since your agency has scored uh, such a splashy uh, first novel uh, launches as uh, Michael Chabin's uh, The Mysteries of Pittsburgh and Marty Limeback's Dying Young. Uh, do you find uh, that perhaps the art of the deal is replacing the art of the novel in the forebrains of uh, apprentice writers? Um, I uh, read a piece in uh, Lingua Franca titled uh, "The Stepford Writers," uh, which asserted that uh, which asserted that there is a careerism so bad you might think you are in a business school uh, in America's writing programs. Um, and if and if the art of the deal is foremost, how do you reassert the reality principle? Uh, a question many of us 
that every working day. You see what the ages get. I'm supposed to bring the, bring in a note of crass materialism to this otherwise high toned panel up here. In fact, I so insist on it. <laughs> you <laughs> insist on it. Well, I don't mind adding a confessional note. Um, my real goal in life, and I do have this goal, is to make art and commerce coincide. And I don't care who thinks that sounds weird or who thinks that sounds uh, peculiar. That by that I mean I would like to take a writer's career, really good writer's career, and see that that work gets the kind of audience usually reserved for less fine writing. So now having said that, I do want you to know that we've, that we've tried all different ways to make that happen, and some of them are crass, materialistic ways to make those things occur. But I was thinking about where our writers came from when Gary asked me this, and I looked over the list. I don't even know always whether our writers came from, have MFAs or came from writing programs, but I did count, and I know for certain that of the 80 writers we represent, we have 80 writers, but there are only 15 to 20 books a year that are ready for publication. And I tell you that to show you that, that we, are, we are generally trying to find writers who are committed to the art of writing. Okay. Now, out of those 80 writers, 15 of them, no, excuse me, 19 of them do have MFAs. They, um, I know that four came from Columbia, four from Iowa, six from Irvine. Houston, um, let's see, maybe Johns Hopkins, one of them. They come from all over the country. In addition to that, 15 of them are teachers. So um, for me, the writing programs are essential. They really do um, support our agency. Now, do I think that these writing programs emphasize careerism? Uh, do I think the art of the deal is replacing the art of the novel? Um, I think that the writing programs have definitely made their students more sophisticated. They know more about the business when they come to us um, than they ever did before. But I do not think for a moment that they put careerism ahead of their craft, of their practice of the craft. On the other hand, I think that what has happened in publishing as the deals get bigger and bigger and more and more publicized, more and more writers um, are met with these astonishingly, disconcertingly flashy terms. And they want to not only have their share, but they wonder, too, if they measure up. One of the hardest things that can happen in a writing program is for one of this year's students to be the latest discovery. The news of the size of the advance, the movie deal, flashes through the entire student body of the program like wildfire. And there's much gnashing of teeth and, you know, wailing at the bar about how undeserving that particular manuscript was. It's very hard for them to, to deal with. I also started thinking about why it is now that we do hear more about the deal. What has happened to publishing that is making, that is making this so much, uh, so assiduously covered by journalists? I know that it must be partly that the deals are getting bigger than ever these days, and there seem to be more of them. And why? When I started thinking about why some obvious clues, which you may already have come to, did come to me, one is that the lead of the leaders is widening. 
That is, the top-selling authors are selling so much more than the ordinary authors as to almost constitute a difference in kind. There are many reasons why for this. I'm not competent to answer the reasons why that is happening. But to give you an example, think about these numbers. The top of the New York Times bestseller list will has out in, in print a million one hundred. I think it may be a million three hundred thousand copies now. I'm not saying fiction, nonfiction. I'm just saying that the top of the list has well over a million copies out. If you go down the list, not so very many places, you will find books that will never sell as much as one tenth of that amount. Now let's get into the real life of our world where many books don't sell but 5,000 or 6,000 copies. And you're looking at an industry that has to cope with the difference between 1 million and 5,000. So now that publishing has become a corporate, much more of a big corporation, you can imagine a CEO who looks at that kind of number. And what they've done very often is what we call checkbook publishing. You don't try to, to sign up a new author and grow your own. It's too chancy. It takes too long. You take out your checkbook and you buy an author that's full grown. You buy one of these leaders. And so what you've done then is create another deal for these newspapers, for the newspapers to write about. I think that situation, that situation of that mad money that's out there, if you could find it, is one of the reasons that I'm in the real growth part of our industry. If you want to see growth, look at the LMP of 1982 and look at the number of literary agents. Now try to pick up the LMP of 1992 and look at the number of literary agents. We have become increasingly visible in this business. And no wonder there are no startup costs, there are no requirements. We are not required to have any sort of education, no apprenticeship, there are no licensing procedures. All we have to do is get one of you writers to trust you, us with the manuscript that we can then make one of these people buy from us and we are a literary agent. Now, there, the, because the big money is available out there for the right kind of projects, the pressure has been on agents make the deal bigger and bigger and to capture it. And we've seen a kind of gone Hollywood in our business where the agents and their deals have become the stars and the writers are kept around as props, sort of stage props. No one can argue that these deals have benefited a number of agents and authors tremendously, but I think that any of you can see that it sort of reflects what's happened in our general population where a smaller and smaller percentage of the population controls a larger and larger portion of the wealth, and there is less and less trickling down to the bottom half of the population. It, so I think that we agents are also responsible for keeping the eye of the public on many of these big deals. And now there's a third factor that I think has contributed to these deals, and that's the destabilization of publishing houses. Editors are fired willy-nilly as far as those of us on the outside can see. Publishing lists that were publishing 200 books, there's a meeting and they're only going to publish 40 books next year. Contracts are canceled. Authors are bereft. I mean, it, it, is, it is chaos. Lists 
change their complexions, rendering some titles not right anymore. We shouldn't be surprised that author loyalty seems to be an endangered value. This is a true story of one of my authors, and not an insignificant author to this company. His editor was fired. He was reassigned to another editor who took him to lunch. Two weeks later, had left for another job, as two. He was reassigned to a third editor. She took him to lunch. And two weeks later, she had left for another job. This is unusual, I'll admit it, but it happened. His fourth editor was assigned to him. This is in a space of a few months. Called him and said, hi, I'm, I'm your new editor. And I often said, I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> there is this silence. He said, well, you do know, don't you? This is their way of telling you you're fired. <laughs> it, is, it wasn't the easiest way for this um, editor to start his relationship with the author. <laughs> Um, and this happens routinely to us now. If you speak to any agent and you can hear and ask them for tales of the orphan book, and you will certainly find those tales. So if author loyalty is something of the past, and option clauses are toothless, and if they aren't toothless, you've got the wrong agent, what will ensure a publisher for the what will ensure a future for that publisher? It's a multi-book deal. It's commonplace now to hear that an author has signed a five-book deal with a house. I used to think this was one of the worst things you could do to an author, because how did you know how well that publisher was going to perform? And now I look around me, and that is the thing that is generating eight-figure deals all around me. No wonder you have to pay $20 million if you're going to sign up 10 books or that's an exaggeration, five books, sorry. So uh, it, the multi-book deal is another thing that these writers in the schools hear about. They read these tremendous figures and they wonder what in the world are they going to write that would come up to that. And it's an effort for them to stay back and keep, keep thinking about the, the book that they're writing on. So writers, they do know this. They, they they not only have to put up with that, but I also have to see that once they sell their book for however little, then they're sent on the road to sell it again. Imagine what that might do to their imagine to the time that they have to write and to their imagination. I'm not really worried that writers are going to be corrupted by careerism, writers in these writing conferences. I'm not worried that they don't know their craft. They do. I, I am almost certain that these writing programs have raised the level of competence of the craft. What I, and, and, and I know that there are problems about the deal, but most of all, these writers are trying to write a good book. They are not writing to the market, the writers that we're speaking of. They are not reading the bestsellers and thinking, what ingredients can I put together and make for, that will come, you know, put me on the list? I believe that the trouble lies elsewhere, and I hope that we'll get to this at the panel. I think that I've seen many manuscripts where the technical pyrotechnics were dazzling, but I am reading a fiction without a narrative, or I am seeing a gorgeous style without any substance, or I am seeing carefully wrought prose with all the risks removed and the reach within everybody's grasp. 
are some of these writing programs responsible for the risks that aren't taken, the experiments that are avoided, the ambitious attempts not made? Now, I will tell you that when I try to take on a novel like that, I have a hard row to hoe sometimes. It is very hard. We have a writing program student right now whose first novel met all those criteria as far as I'm concerned. Ambitious, he reached for so much. It was unusual. Okay, it was ragged, but why wouldn't it have been that good? We didn't sell it, but the good news is he kept writing and his second novel is under contract. So, you know, that's the thing we have to do. What Are the writing programs culpable? in this regard, or is this just a stage in the writer's development? Are they concentrating at that point on learning the craft? Stay tuned. Uh, <laughs> from the, from the, the uh, scenario that you presented, I'm not sure whether I'm sorry that I'm not a novelist or, or whether I should start writing one. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, quite a disorienting landscape you present. Um, I, w I would like to move to actually to questions of quality uh, of writing uh, and and uh, and ask uh, and, and uh, ask my next question of Jim Walcott. Um, a lot of people actually believe that they can smell the spore of time spent in creative writing workshops uh, on on a writer's work. Uh, can you? Uh, I mean, from where you sit as an observer of American fiction of some long standing. How pervasive is the effect of creative writing programs in American fiction? What qualities might these programs uh, engender and what qualities seem to be missing? Well, you can always talk more to list writers and then sort of suss them out pretty quick. Um, there, are, there, are certain, there are certain styles, you know, I mean, when your teacher said no acid trips, I mean, I think probably now the thing would be everyone's working through their abuse problems, you know. You know <laughs> And and was was it false, <coughs> you know? Was it false memory, or did Uncle Jack actually come into the room, you know? <laughs> um, the pr I, I mean, the problem is, I mean, we we are, you know, the writers writers are very confident now. But I, what I find is is a certain just lack of spirit, a lack of energy. I, I find so many stories where you can predict the dying fall in the last paragraph. You get to the last paragraph, and it's sort of like this muffled sound. It's sort of the equivalent of a sunset behind a cloud. I mean, the New Yorker is notorious for that. I think one of the things that's missing is, I, I want to sort of change the subject just a little bit. I, I think one of the things that's wrong is that we're in an era of absolutely moribund criticism. H.L. Mencken said that American literature was at its liveliest when everybody was attacking each other, when, when everyone was after Melville. Uh, I mean, if you go back to the, the era of the romantics, I mean, they were vicious. I mean, they were vicious about Keats and Shelley and all those people. I mean, they attacked them personally. I mean, people act as if like personal attacks on writers is something new. Nothing could be worse than what they said in the Edinburgh Review about about the romantic writing. Uh, in the 20s, criticism was very lively. One of the things that's an outcome uh, of the, these writing programs is everybody is, you know, spending their holidays together. They're all buddies. They're all friends. You know, and nobody wants to attack anybody else. I mean, I think I think you know, I think the literary world should be full of duels. I think it should be full of feuds. I think people should leave the room when somebody else enters the room. You know, I think that's the way it, you know it should be. And if everybody is sort of like supportive and helpful, and how are you, how are you doing at this house? And how did did you hear so and so? I mean, I think that, I mean you can see it in the New York Times book review where they have a very hard time getting critics for certain books because there are certain writers who are so much in the center of the web 
that you cannot get anybody to review them because it's like, if I review that person, I'm gonna run into them at this conference and there's gonna be, you know, I'm gonna get stared down. One of the things the Times does, which I think is a scandal, is they use people like Ann Tyler, who's gone on record saying she will not criticize a book. Guaranteeing a favorable review. Uh, and there's a lot of that now, because what happens is it's easier to do that and, and to stifle trouble than to give it to somebody you don't know who might actually let loose with a zinger. And I, I, I noticed, the people I know who are in creative writing programs, they do very little criticism, and when they do do it, they worry about it to death. They, they are paralyzed with the fear, and so you have to read between the lines of their review. The review comes out in the Times, and it's like in the penultimate paragraph, there's some criticism. But then in the last paragraph, it turns into, but one looks forward to so-and-so's <laughs> next effort. Or, you know, with a book this ambitious, one expects that, you know, and the thing is, it just, uh, it deadens the reader. And, and the thing that I fear is, is that as, I mean, I think you're gonna have more creative writing programs because writers are gonna get lonelier, they're gonna get, it's, it's, there are fewer places to publish, they're gonna need each other. But, but the effect is gonna be that they are gonna be like these abuse groups, they're all gonna be like consoling each other, you know? <laughs> like, what, she didn't call you back, she didn't call me back either, you know, that sort of thing. Anyway, I'll leave <laughs> Barbara, would you like to attack Jim Walcott? <laughs> <laughs> no, but all of my friends will. <laughs> uh, where was I? Um, I? I actually want to explore uh, from uh, a bit this, the question of, of, of sheer volume uh, as, as, as my desk groans under the weight of uh, a dozen manuscripts. Um, on my bulletin board, I have... Uh, typed on an index card a wonderful quote uh, from Flannery O'Connor, uh, herself a product of the fabled Iowa Writers' Workshop. Everywhere I go, I'm asked if I think uh, the university stifles writers. My opinion is that they don't stifle enough of them. <laughs> There's many a bestseller that could have been prevented by a good teacher. Um, that's from this book, um, Mystery and Manners by Flannery O'Connor, a holy text. Go out and buy it. Um, what I've said at writers' conferences is that American literature is not threatened by a rising tide of mediocrity, but rather a rising tide of competence, uh, within which tide of published and seeking to be published work, uh, the genuine, the lasting article, the real right thing, uh, can be lost. And I'm going to ask uh, Barbara uh, whether she sees it that way, whether you, whether you worry uh, at all about that. If you don't, I'll ask somebody else. The only thing that worries me is that um, that we'll get so wrapped up in questions of form that we lose sight of um, the activity itself. I, 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 I don't see how any situation that encourages people to read or write can possibly be bad for reading or writing. Um, and I can't imagine w why programs should be accused continually. This is the, the, you know, we read this article at least once a year in mainstream press and at least 40 times a month in the non-mainstream press. The, 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 the charge that workshops 
homogenize writers, that workshops turn out the same kinds of writers all the time. It's true that for a while everybody was writing Ray Carver short stories. Um, and Ray Carver was my teacher at Iowa, and I wrote three terrific Ray Carver stories. <laughs> I think he published two of them. And <laughs> we all did. Um, but there was a reason for that, and that was that it's very easy to write what seems like a finished Ray Carver story. Um, Leonard Michaels was a teacher of ours at, 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 at Iowa, and for a while we were all writing Leonard Michaels, but imitation is the way most people learn to do everything. You learn to walk that way, you learn to talk that way, you learn to, to, to die that way. That's what human beings do in order to learn to be better whatever it is they're trying to be. The point is that at a certain point, everybody breaks free of what it is they're imitating, and you know that moment. There's a, there's a piece of apocrypha that's always passed around class after class at Iowa, which is that in the previous class, um, everybody was dying to get a short story into the New Yorker. And so the six best writing people there, the teaching writing fellows, the ones who got the scholarships and the ones who everybody else hated, um, sat down and for weeks crafted a perfect New Yorker short story. They studied centuries, centuries upon centuries of New Yorkers, and they read all the fiction, and they figured out exactly what it was that the fiction editors at the New Yorker that week, that month, were looking for. Somebody, I can't remember who, I wish I could, I think it was Calvin Trillin once described a <coughs> New Yorker short story as being any short story without its last paragraph. So they took <laughs> off the last paragraph. <laughs> and they sent it with great trepidation, using a made-up name, into the New Yorker, and three days later got back a wonderful letter from a famous editor at the New Yorker, which was, um, Dear Joan Smith, um, thank you for your brilliant and edifying submission. I wish that we could find room in the New Yorker for your story, but we've published so much like it recently <laughs> that um, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And, and, but there's nothing wrong with imitation, and there's nothing wrong with trying, because that's how you learn not to imitate. Yeah. Uh, Barbara, one of the things that the articles that have been published about writing programs that have criticized them say is that they are poor when one kind of writing dominates. You were talking about the Ray Carver short story, and you were saying that, that you outgrow that imitation, but what about those schools that have very, that have, um, well, I know one, where Oakley Hall and McDonnell Harris were the two teachers at Irvine if you all know they're writing it all, they couldn't be more different. And it seemed to me that that kind of writing school, uh, because of the lack of prescriptiveness about what constitutes good writing, turned out some remarkably good young people is turning them out now. Um, Whitney Otto was one of the more, more recent ones. Um, so is there the danger that when, when you get the single voice that dominates or the single talent, is, is that, I don't know, I'm just thinking that that kind of imitation may be not as beneficial as the variety or the lack of prescription. But built into all these programs, correct me if I'm wrong, um, is the fact that the faculty rotates in and out. There's usually one or two people that are stuck there for a couple of years because it's their job, but they're usually administrative. And then people are brought in, and you get a semester of this guy and a semester of this woman, and they're different voices and different talents, and, and you do get exposed to a lot of different writers. So there isn't that consistency. Also, there's the assumption that there are a lot of 
very distinctive voices out there that one wants to imitate. <laughs> There's not that many around. I, I think that uh, that underlying this discussion of you know a writing program good for you, bad for you, um, indifferent um, is is a uh, I think an important cultural truth. Uh, we've not been living you know in uh, in uh, um, the Athens of the fourth century the last 10 years, or 15 years. We've not been living in, in um, you know, the Jacobean period of, of uh, the drama. We've not been living in 19th century Paris with Flaubert and Baudelaire and all that. We've been living in a really rotten time, culturally speaking. I mean, the last 15 years are kind of like the antithesis of culture and art in the general society. Um, and the writing programs are about what there is, as far as I can see, to keep the tradition alive. As, as I, they're like catacomb Christianity. <coughs> the, there are these little, you know, centers where, where the, uh, the disciples are brought and they're sort of given the word that, that there's something serious called art that's very difficult very complicated. You probably won't even get to it for another 10 years. But here's how you begin. Furthermore, it, there's, there's something very important called literature, which you really should know about if you want to be a writer. And elsewhere in the university campuses, you're not going to, particularly in the English department, you're unlikely to get anything like that. Literature simply being something that critics do to keep themselves occupied and uh, and in order to make as much room for po as possible for themselves they just dismiss the author and simply uh, regard the text as, as their um, uh, as their companion uh, adversary what have you so the creative writing programs are also take on the function of of keeping alive the literary tradition and as a result you know uh, there is still uh, um, a um, an institution that is maintaining what's left of, of American literature, of English literature, as a ongoing and significant and uh, in some ways the most important uh, um, aspect of, of the, um, the cultured life. And I think that you really have to take that into account as well. I think I want to pick up on that because um, I, writers are also of the world and write about the world. And if you're down in your catacomb um, um, reading F.R. Levis and, and um, holding on to a tradition, keeping the world at bay, I think that has uh, certain results. I would also observe that a lot of these anchorites end up getting pretty well paid at the end of the at the end of their days in the cave. Um, well, just a minute, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a big, uh, you know, I talked about the gravy train. I was sort of half kidding around because, you know, for every person who's teaching at, at, uh, um, at um, Boston University or Johns Hopkins, there are a lot more people teaching at Southwest Louisiana State and at uh, um, uh, 
green or or uh, at uh, uh, you know a lot of the second third rate places have writing programs and that's where the younger writers go and moreover there's another uh, misconception which I think I've been guilty of and have been corrected about it is that when you go there as a writer you kind of shut yourself off from the society uh, and it turns out as uh, someone was recently putting me straight um, um, that you know those kids are teaching freshmen sophomore freshman English, they're learning an awful lot about what kids go through today in America, what they come to Iowa or Michigan or, uh, or Ball State uh, with in the way of abuse or in the way of, of, uh, of um, um, uh, ignorance, in the way of uh, uh, cultural stupidity, uh, and in the way of, uh, of the kind of dopey pressures that are put on teenagers. And and deal with that, uh, deal with kids whose brothers have AIDS, uh, so that this is you know, the campus is not an ivory tower anymore. It's it's more like you know in some ways the uh, uh, one one of the, um, the the shopping malls of America where where people come to uh, to buy their education and uh, bring with them uh, all of the uh, the problems, uh, predicaments, plights that. Uh, that the society is heir to. That, that is true, but nevertheless, a lot of the criticism that I've seen lodged against creative writing programs by people in creative writing programs centers around uh, the absence uh, of political engagement um, in the work produced, uh, that the focus is inward towards issues of self-expression rather than outwards towards uh, issues of political change and struggle. Uh, there's a writer by the name of Eve Shelnett um, who argues in um, current issue, I think it's confrontation, uh, someone kindly sent me, uh, that this dooms uh, the writing to weightlessness um, in comparison to the work of such writers as uh, Gordimer, Kundera, Naipaul, and Fuentes, who are often used to beat American writers over the head, I've noticed. Um, and she goes on to say, it is conceivable that a writing program can be constructed not around helping students perfect their text, but instead in expanding what constitutes their visions of themselves uh, as writers. And I would ask anybody who wants to pick this up in the panel whether, whether the criticism um, is valid in the first instance, and can a writing program uh, be asked to do something along those lines to construct a politically engaged art? 24-year-olds are not sophisticated, politically engaged human beings. I mean, the problem is not in the workshop. The problem is in, in the age of the people who are producing the writing. And uh, part, a friend of mine was stuck in an elevator once with, uh, with Philip Roth and, and asked for uh, you know, a piece of advice uh, as a writer, and Roth said, don't publish anything until you're 35. Uh, it's probably the best piece of advice anybody ever gave any writer. The, the level of sophistication that we're demanding from 22 and 23 and 24-year-olds is, is not fair, I think, and, and to blame the workshop for suckering these young people um, and giving them a couple of years out of, out of life, I 
think is also unfair. You can't, you know, you don't go poof, you're mature, you're politically alert, and um, you've been exposed to the same thing that, that, you know, 40 years growing up in South Africa was doing. They gotta go out in the world and, and, and learn and live and then run. Um, the, 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 the place I think that nobody ever puts the blame, and, and here I hold myself and my profession squarely um, to, to blame, is that don't forget that um, no matter what people are writing, no matter what the styles are, no matter what the homogenized uh, product coming out of these workshops is, it's the publishers and editors in New York City and the agents who are representing and buying and publishing these works who are responsible for, for the, the fact that you and I get to read them all the time. So there's, there's an arbiter in between the workshop and the consumer that might be more primarily responsible for the kinds of writing that we are um, being exposed to uh, far more than what the workshop is, is producing. It's very, very possible, and I would argue that it probably is the case that the workshops in America are producing a much wider variety of, of kinds of writers and voices and styles than we very narrow-minded publishers who are always looking for the next book that's gonna do what the last book did to publish. It's our fault, not the workshop's fault, I think. Well, certainly it's mine. It's true that none of us are without sin. Uh, I sometimes think about, uh, think of it as the iron triangle of uh, publishers, agents, and creative writing programs, each in a, in a kind of interlocking um, system. Uh, and what comes around goes around and comes around and goes around. Um, what we're going to do, I think, since we're uh, coming up to something close to the end of our time. I'm going to ask uh, each of the panelists to, uh, to sum up uh, a bit, uh, even possibly even to answer the question uh, that gives the panel its, um, its um, title. And, and then we will uh, take questions from the floor. Um, and so if Jim, starting from the right, if Jim would say what's ever on his mind and uh, well, my first thought is that if you're stuck in an elevator with Philip Roth, you're really stuck. <laughs> <laughs> secondly, secondly, I can't think of I can't think of anything any worse advice. I mean, you should. Well, I don't want to take a fight with Philip Roth, but I mean, Why it's really no, but but it's, 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 it's ridiculous yeah. to say people shouldn't publish until they're 35. You could, you know, you could if you spend 10 minutes, you could think of a lot of great books that were, you know, or at least exciting books that were written by people under 30. And the idea that you're supposed to put it away and let it, you know. You know, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, you know. I mean, Fitzgerald was publishing very early. I mean, we, we don't know if Gatsby would have came into being if he hadn't done the other books when he was in his mid-20s. The, th the thing that worries me a little bit is, uh, or the thing that I'm a little perplexed by is, I understand the, on a rational basis, the idea that writing programs can help continue literature, that it can provide some sort of bridge. But the fact is, I, I actually don't see it. If when you consider all the thousands of people coming out of writing programs, the fact is that literary quarterlies uh, are not exploding in circulation. These people aren't buying publications. I mean, it, it, when, when I, I, I have this fetish where I actually look at the annual uh, uh, numbers when, you know, when they have the publishing numbers and they tell you like how many subscribed last year, how many subscribed this year, on nearly every literary quarter you look at, it's down, it's always down. It was like 3,400 last year, this year 3,200. So all these people coming out of these programs, they may be interested in their own careers, but it doesn't seem as if 
very many of them are actually interested in reading their contemporaries. And, and I also don't think that there's really, the, the creative writing people I know who came out of programs, when it comes to their background in literature, and I won't say this is true all of them, but for a lot of them, it's like, okay, they read Chekhov because Chekhov influenced Raymond Carver. They read Hemingway <laughs> because Hemingway influenced Raymond Carver. They read Fitzgerald because Fitzgerald has such a great influence on Jay McInerney. And they read, they read other people in their own age group. Uh, but there's, there's not a great depth or feeling for literature. Now, in some ways, you don't need it. In, it actually helps to be an ignoramus to write a novel. Because in fact, what it does is it, it frees you from the sense of, I've got you know hundreds of years of literature. I can't do what Trollope did. Well, if you don't know anything about Trollope, you don't worry, you can plunge ahead. Um, but it, I, I don't know if, if, I mean, I have a feeling that the creative writing programs, in fact, aren't bridging literature, that they're just some sort of a sideways movement, and it helps some people, and, and other people take the courses for other reasons, which is, which are, which include to meet writers, which is not, you know, I mean, people have always wanted to, you know, do, to take courses for other reasons. Um, but I, I wonder if five years from now we'll look back and say, oh, well, this actually did lead, this did seed a boom in American literature. I have a feeling five years from now we're going to look at those numbers for literary quarterlies and they'll be down to like 1,200. And they'll, they'll, be, they'll exist only because they're subsidized by the universities, not because there's any readership. I just want to contribute my own piece of apocrypha, which is about the, um, the small circulation literary quarterly that announced the poetry contest and received uh, entries uh, numbering four times its circulation. Yeah. Pat Strawn used to destroy writing conferences when she was working at Sarah Strauss by going in, having been asked to come as a poetry editor and saying, how many of you bought a book of poetry within the last year? And one or two hands would go up. And th this would, would be an assembly of poets. And um, just to underline what you're saying, they, it, it isn't that these writer, writers' conferences encourage reading of anybody's work except those that they're going to be judged mm. against in the same conference. So that is a real problem. I don't know how to solve that at all. But as for me, I, I highly approve of them. Not only do I think that it does preserve something of the tradition, as Ted was saying, but I know it gives these writers a time when writing for once is their top priority. It's not any other subject, it's not, it's, it's not earning their living, it's not being the secretary or whatever else they were doing to try to earn their living. They are writers and they get to call themselves and think of themselves as writers. It's a way of taking yourself seriously in a good way, I think. And, and then there's all the mentorship that's possible. There's the, the value in having somebody who's experienced go over your manuscript and show you different ways of doing something. You've written yourself into a blind alley, and here's a suggestion, here's a turning you didn't know how to take. I think they're highly valuable. But I also think that the other writers that come to us in publishing that didn't have any writing experience have arrived at the same place that many of these writing conference graduates have arrived. So, but I hope they stay around. So. I want to say something about something that bothers me about this conversation, and it's not anything that Jim said specifically, but it's the idea of quantity. Um, if you're a Democrat, quantity doesn't bother you. Otherwise, you'd be a Republican. Um, 
Uh, literary magazines have a very stable sort of circulation. I mean, I've been doing mine for 20 years. It, it goes up and down, but it goes up and down about a foot. It doesn't much matter, you know. I mean, the people who read seem to be a very stable audience out there. And if we're worried about numbers, you wouldn't be in publishing, first of all. I mean, you, you, can, you can do bigger numbers in almost any other industry in the world. You wouldn't be in publishing. And if you were interested uh, and committed to publishing poetry, short stories, novellas, and serious novels, um, you can't be concerned with numbers. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it, or you wouldn't be doing it for long, or you'd, you'd be stupid. But if you aren't concerned to some extent, you won't be doing it for long either. No, I, underst I understand that. But you do what you can do, and you continue to do it. Um, we, we publish in, in Antaeus, which we've done now for about 20 years, um, stories. Our circulation um, went right to about 2,000, 3,000 in that, in that area. And it, it maintains itself that way through uh, good times and bad times. But that readership is fairly stable. Uh, um, I think it's something that James Tate once said. He was asked, there's so many people writing poetry. Isn't it terrible? You know, I mean, everybody thinks they can write poetry. And Tate said something really wonderful. He said, yeah, but they don't hurt anybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there, there, are, there are much more serious forms of dissipation than write, spending your weekends writing a novel. Um, thing that I, I guess I'd like to say at the end, which is uh, sort of what I came here to say at the beginning, um, was that uh, queer writing programs are, are kind of, uh, you know, a last resource, I think, uh, for, for literary value and experience and consciousness. Uh, and the training of it, uh, if to the extent it can be trained. And I think it should take itself more seriously in this way. And and revive, reform the program so that they offer a much more, uh, as Jim Walcott would say, a, a mu much more serious and intensive literary training than they do. Um, that um, I would like to see them be a, a year longer. I would also like to see them uh, stop making writers at the age of 23 or 24 decide that they're novelists or poets or film writers. I mean, it's sort of like gra grabbing kids as they come to medical school and say, hey, okay, decide right now on the spot. Are you going to be a psychiatrist or a surgeon? Uh, what organ are you going to specialize in? Have you? Uh, it, I think that, you know, these writing programs should be giving writers the opportunity to write fiction, poetry, plays, uh, film scripts, uh, they should also make them be able to translate so that part of, of the requirement is that you can translate at a professional level in a foreign language. Uh, I think they should also be able to write decent literary journalism uh, and uh, that, that that too should be part of the program. You can't do this in two years and, and as it is, my big uh, objection to the writing programs is that they don't really work very hard. It's, you know, you, you go to the, 
after the workshop, you go to your seminar, and and then you go to uh, whatever the the version of the local pub is and, and talk about your instructor and so on. Um, I think that they could be really professional programs. They take longer, uh, they take more of a commitment from the university. Uh, but I think that given their, their importance to the culture as well as to the individual writer, that they should be doing more than they do. Thank you. Um, Will, there are microphones there and there, and if, if you have questions, come to the microphone and address them. Please make them questions, not speeches. This is, wait, the, uh, oh, you can, if you'd like to. There was an excerpt of a letter uh, in the New York Times, I think it was yesterday, I don't remember the name of the writer, but he had a creative writing class. I don't know whether you've seen it. And he writes this letter, there was an excerpt uh, to his students, prospective students oh. and those whom he's already had. It's Gordon Lish. I published him. What was his name? Uh, Gordon Lish. <laughs> Gordon Lish. Anyway, <laughs> it was such a contrived letter, pompous and narcissistic, and in addition to everything else, he charged $2,400 for 12 sessions, and some of the students took this class over and over again. They uh, like it. There's something wrong in having a writer who tends to be narcissistic, and most writers are. Uh, I'm not blaming them. Uh, wouldn't, a, wouldn't a better solution be uh, a benign psychologist, let's say? <laughs> you cannot extrapolate from Gordon Lish. That's all I, <laughs> that's the only <laughs> thing I can, Gordon Lish is his own case. A question, please. Uh, yes, uh, actually I have an answer. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I have an answer to James Tate's quest question, which was actually offered up by the Irish poet John Montague. The question, of course, was, you know, what's so dangerous about all these, all these poets? John Montague, in a wonderful poem about writing students, said uh, they're very dangerous because of their addiction to truth. Um, but I, my, the question, now I have, for you, has to do with um, this relationship between life and literature. Now, uh, poet John Foy, when introducing William Matthews the other night at Reading Up to Columbia, talked about how well integrated Matthews's life was with his poetry. That somehow or other, you know, one fed into the other and then kind of came back again. But there is a movement, uh, especially in the downtown New York scene and in Chicago and certain parts of uh, Los Angeles uh, and throughout the country, to say that no, let's not. There's no more masterpieces. Literature stops here, life begins here, and there's a big um, impermeable wall that separates the two. The idea is that the writing should come um, from the ground you're walking on, not the books that you read. Also, that the echoes, for example, um, you know, oftentimes when we come to a poem or, or a work of literature, we listen for the echoes of other works of literature. And what the point that they're trying to make is that you listen to the echoes of the people around you listen to the echoes of what's happening politically, culturally, uh, what's happening in Europe. Uh, you know what that sounds like? It sounds like a 
But, you know, what you end up with, you, it, like that Gap ad where the guy comes up and he says, you know, what fits? You know, sky fits, so ride it. You know, I mean, it, I mean, a lot of a lot of this stuff is stuff that, you know, th it really is kind of refried Kerouac and, and, uh, and, and by the way, I, I wouldn't want to put down the beats. I mean, I think Kerouac was, was a genius. And the thing is, one of the reasons he's a genius is because there's been 20 to 30 years of people trying to top what Kerouac did, and they, didn't, they haven't even come close. Um, but on the other hand, I, I, one thing I do think is exciting is, is, is that I do think it's good to have a public aspect to poetry and writing. I mean, I sort of like the idea of people getting up and, and reading their poems and other people yelling back at them. Uh, I mean, I, I think that, that, you know, that that's sort of in, you know, more encouraging than the system where every, everything is supposed to be received in, in polite and dignified silence. Anybody? I don't know what the question was. Do we have any other answers? <laughs> no. Sir. I, just, I have a question for all the panel. Do, do any of you have any kind of hard numerical data about, about the ratio of the, between those people who have gone through these creative writer programs and the number of outstanding writers? Is my impression is that literally thousands of people are putting in millions of hours at heaven knows how many institutions in these creative writing programs. And the, the relevance of these things, numerically speaking, to literature seems to be scarcely detectable. Does anyone have any, any numbers that would support or refute my assertion? They're hard to come by. Um, because how do you tell an outstanding writer from uh, a merely competent? <coughs> I mean, see, publishing is so small, nobody bothers to do demographics about it. We can't support the research. Um, does anybody know anything about that? It's an appalling prospect, really, though, I th I'll, I'll give you that. Um, wait, so uh, we have some statistical heads in the... Uh, back there, uh, Alice Turner. Um, I don't really need a mic, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, a, a, I'll back you up on that. I once asked Oakley Hall exactly the same question, and Oakley said most of what we're teaching is teachers. He said most of these people will not go on to be professional writers, but a large majority of them will go on to be teachers. So I said, what happens when all the programs are staffed? And Oakley just laughed. <laughs> <laughs> um, sir. Yes, I was at the Poet's House um, about two months ago. Poet's House, Poet's House had the uh, conference on the future of publishing poetry and there was also a panel one night about the like the future of reviewing poetry and I forget the factors why but many of the people on the panel were saying that there has been a decline 
and it's been increasingly difficult to get people to um, to find reviewers for new books of poetry, okay, to keep the journals going. Um, again, I forget the factors why, but that and a few other things that you've talked about tonight, I was wondering if perhaps Mr. Solitaroff could, um, or anyone else, find some sort of a link between that uh, increasing difficulty in finding reviewers for um, either poetry or literary publishing in general. Also, the um, what has been referred to the political naivete or apathy of students in the creative writing programs. The um, as um, Mr. Walcott was saying, the sort of um, being too nice with each other, the the too supportive or not antagonistic enough, not tough enough with each other. And also, um, I think someone else was saying that there has been in general a decline of uh, writers who are writing criticism or reviews. I think Mr. Solitaroff was saying that it would be good to have more, um, to engage writers more in writing criticism as well as the more literary publishing. Is okay. there, do you see a link of, um, well, I know um, Robert Bly has for years and years now been saying that uh, one of the main problems in American poetry is that the generations are no longer attacking each other. Um, that um, uh, as Bly himself uh, is a cardinal example that uh, uh, his, his uh, development as a poet was very largely uh, across the um, the toppled backs of Eliot and Auden and the English uh, modern poets, and that that because so many of the poets today uh, are really have been taught by the the older generation, whose job it is for them now to attack, uh, um, this doesn't happen as much. That there is not the ad adversarial relationship that that literature has thrived on, in which one generation pushes uh, against the, uh, uh, the reputations, the methods uh, uh, of, of their, uh, their elders and, and uh, makes it new. I wonder, Dan, if you have any response to that kind of argument. Well, I mean, I think there are a lot of um, issues involved with that question. One is that um, there is a lack of criticism of poetry. Uh, I hate to say this, but uh, it seems to me that part of it's due to the fact that uh, everybody looks at the Times Book Review, and they don't do much poetry anymore. And when they do it, they don't do it very well, and they do it in a very cursory way. Uh, I think that a lot of the publications throughout the country follow, follow course, that if the Times is not doing it, they don't do it. Therefore, I mean, there are a lot of writers who would write criticism for the Times, might not write it for Parnassus or a literary magazine or for Poetry Magazine because um, they want the exposure. I think it's certainly a problem. Uh, that, that's certainly a problem. Uh, the New Yorker, um, the New Yorker review does review poetry from time to time. Uh, Helen Bendler does it. Um, we're not sure what's going to happen now. Uh, the way in which poetry will be dealt with there is, is probably going to be less than it was in the past. Um, as far as the adversarial relationship, um, I don't know.
don't know. I mean, I think that there, there, there's, no, there's no form in which you are able to discuss poetry and, and talk about it, uh, not necessarily negatively, but in, in a way that's um, available to a lot of people. Um, a, uh, American Poetry Review is uh, a place that, it's, that um, might take place. People aren't thinking about poetry very well these days. I mean, they're not writing about it. They're not um, addressing issues that that seem uh, central to certainly the people in the workshops that I that I talk to. Uh, my students don't read the literary magazines. They don't read their peers, which is something that amazes me. They read, for the most part, most of my students over the last five years read prose, which isn't a bad thing. But you think they'd read their peers, they'd read um, books of poetry that come out. The poetry they read is uh, poetry from another period. They, they read Wallace Stevens, uh, which is something you'd expect them to read. But there's, there's, there's uh, something missing. It's not like uh, 20 years ago when I went to the, the Columbia Writing Program, everybody wanted to know what the next person was writing so that they could jump on it and attack them. And take issue with what was happening and uh, take a stand. Uh, the students in my classes now don't know what each other are writing, really, outside of the writing program. I'm not sure where that comes from and what it means, but it certainly is um, a consistent situation and, and something which each semester over these past years has, has um, been the case. I'm not usually a poetry editor, but um, I, I brought out a book of poems by A.R. Ammons from Norton last year, and it made me yearn for the hoopla of the quiet first novel. Uh, the silence on the reviewing front was so deafening. Uh, yes? Uh, yeah. Um, you said a lot of interesting things, and I've really enjoyed this talk immensely. But I just have one question, and um, I'm sorry it's going to sound kind of obnoxious, but <laughs> I'm a little okay. tired right now. How come you're not mentioning any female critics or poets or writers of any age? I just, I'm a woman writer and I, I'm not hearing a lot of the people that have meant a lot to me as a writer being mentioned. I'm, is it just <laughs> an accident? Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, you can keep Who wants to pick that up? <laughs> I heard uh, Helen Ventler, I heard Jade Anne Smiley, Smiley, I heard oh, Ann Tyler. Right. Jane Smiley, I heard. And Anne okay. Tyler. Uh, I figured it out for you. Yes, sir. Um, I was just wondering, as an alternative to these writing conferences, um, I think it was Gore Vidal who once said, um, in response to does alcohol kill all writers, and he said teaching has killed more, more writers than alcohol or something like that. Anyway, so I was wondering w just a general question to the panel of whether it might not be better I to... Um, for a writer to go out and live something totally not writerly, not teacherly, not poetryly, just something else, and then go back, and whether that might not bring more richness, individuality, um, power to the writing. It's, it's a nice idea. Um, but in fact, in practice, it's, it's, it's tough. When, when I was um, at Iowa, um, Ted came out to visit and to kind of look us all over and you know take some shots in the barrel, and um, 
and we all swarmed around him like the school of fish that we were. And and uh, I remember I, I was at that point I was I was I had you know I'd gone uncle on on the idea of ever um, you know becoming Willa Cather, so I was going to go shoot for the Max Perkins myth and and. I said to him, well, I'm going to come to New York, and I want to get a job in publishing, and I need some advice, Can, because you know, I think that if I'm in the real world, and I, I, I think publishing is a great way to bridge my interest as a writer and um, my, my wanting to stay you know, connected to writers, but also to make a living and to learn something that I can fall back on, because I don't want to be an academic, because I think academics really, you know, all they do is write novels about the academy. And he looked at me, and he said, uh, he said, if, if you want to write, you the last thing in the world you should do is come work in publishing, because uh, we'll eat you alive. And I think that's probably, and it was true, um, and, and I embraced that and, and begged to be eaten and was, in fact, swallowed whole nearly <laughs> six months later. But uh, I, I think that's true of a lot of professions. I think that, that it's, it's, it's very difficult to write and. And one of the things that it's not difficult to write and do is to write and teach, because they're very similar activities. Writing, in a way, is a kind of self-teaching activity. Um, it's you know masturbatory teaching, and and so that it's it. I don't think that 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 writers write great business novels because they go out and run businesses. And I've never heard of a writer who's written a great political novel because they've gone out and run a party, or because they've gone out and, and hung out with you know the gorillas on the shining path. Um, you know, Robert Stone wrote great political novels without ever having been a of um, a, 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 a shining path gorilla. Um, and um, Yeah, the terrible thing about full-time jobs is that they're full-time jobs. Um, question. Hi, I understand that since I went to work, I'm a um, Columbia MFA candidate, and I just wanted to address a misconception. I've worked in the field in arts management for about five or six years, um, kind of responding to what you're saying. I wanted to address kind of a misconception about the student body, that we're not all 22, 23, 24-year-olds, what I have discovered is that the, the students going to get their MFAs are a diverse group, many ages, uh, you know, not as wide a spectrum in terms of race as potentially possible. And that could be rectified, and I'd like to make a suggestion, if people in the industry, in publishing, could come up with more scholarship money. I think you would find in a place like Columbia, where the tuition is so high, if there was more scholarship money, you'd get a more diverse population, and it would improve the quality of these first novels, and you'd get people with more experience. But basically, my point is that we are a diverse group, we MFA candidates. We're not just 22, 23, 24. And many of us, many of my friends and my colleagues, spend our weekends going to the Strand and Skyline Books and reading everything we can in terms of fiction, old stuff, new stuff. That's just what I wanted to share. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Two more questions. Questions. There's been no discussion of spirituality and wholeness. I mean, the implication is that writing is spiritual and comes from that level, and, and writing transforms to some extent. Uh, although I don't think anybody would say you can get enlightened by writing. And and the idea is that reading is is spiritual. 
but none of the programs that I've heard discussed have, have spirituality at their basis. And if anybody is doing anything spiritual, and I don't mean religious, I mean spiritual, something which increases positivity and wholeness, didn't the student and the teacher do that outside the context of the academia? Uh, Mr. Solikoff may have, may have hinted at something spiritual, but I think otherwise uh, I haven't heard this mentioned. So you can have a forum of students and teachers in a creative writing context where the levels of random negativity could be quite high in terms of hostility, depression, aggression, anxiety, uh, obsessive, compulsive, passive, aggressive, manic, All depressive. All of that is in writing. And <laughs> that gets transmitted to the, to the uh, product, which in turn gets transmitted to the agent, the publisher, I mean, and the reader, ultimately. Sir, Aren't we missing the boat by failing to address this, the most central m matter in the whole thing? By, by suggesting that, well, it's a, it's a trivial matter which a uh, person can get on the side. Are, are you asking, can we heal the world from the, from the writing workshops? Well, why not? We've got I'm intractable worried. problems in the world, and individuals also need to be healed. And maybe it's a intimate, maybe, sure. you know, as the individual so the world. Is there a question in there? Yeah, the question is, why aren't we talking about spirituality in our discussion of creative writing if creativity has to do ultimately with, with uh, spirituality? And if all the great writers, Wallace Stevens, for example, have spoken of that level of, of consciousness, pure consciousness. Does anybody want to answer that? Well, we have been talking about that when we were worried about the workshop story or the Max coin. Uh, we're talking about our, our, our uh, concern that there is a failure in quality or a seeking or an ambitiousness of the novel and that craft perhaps has been there's perhaps there some there have been some who've charged that the craft is too much to em emphasize and that what is being written about is too little emphasized but they were talking about that here when they were talking about the spiritual I mean the political and social concerns that seem to be lacking in some of the first novels we're seeing I think that we've talked all around it, but maybe in different terms. Yeah, I think I'd probably like not. I mean, if I read a writer and really felt it was spiritual, I'd I'd, I'd worry. You know, like I I don't think I. There's something about it that that I think they were trying to put something over on me. Um, you know, it it uh, you know it's like the Taoist saying, if you meet Buddha on the road, kill him. You know, I I I tend to. I think spirituality is. I mean, it's something that maybe you attain at an old age. But when you start writing, you're writing because you're bugged. You're, you're writing because there are things in your system that you haven't resolved. Uh, and if you resolve them through prayer or through spiritual healing, I don't, I don't see that there's anything left over for writing. Uh, and, so, and so some people it might be better off if they went into spiritual healing because they might save themselves all the aggravation of trying to get published. <laughs> some of the worst. Ma'am, I wasn't going to tie in this first comment that I have, and then I do have a question with spirituality, but it does tie into a, a brief comment that I was going to make. Uh, if the creative writing courses had as, um, and I don't know if they have a requirement, that you really have to get into depth on basic literature, this problem with spirituality would be part and parcel of what uh, writers today are going to be create, uh, creating because I don't think spirituality is something that you arrive at 
at, a, at an old age or because you're praying on a mountain. I think spirituality is part of the warp and weep of your life, and people are crying out for it. But uh, I think that can we come to yeah. come to a question? Yes, but that it has to have its basis in literature. I'd like to ask you because I was under a misconception. I can understand by the title of this uh, forum about creative writing programs, but uh, I'd like to ask you uh, what you think the value are of the many programs outside of academia that are being taught all over the United States with uh, people that have finished college and maybe they haven't had uh, um, very much academic training, creative writing courses, and what do you think uh, their, uh, the value is of those, uh, those courses? Because I thought that this forum might address something like that too outside of the academic world. Penn does sponsor a prison writing uh, award program, but I don't. <laughs> no, th no, that's I not mean a joke. Over, folks. I mean, uh, uh, you know, all, there's so many creative writing courses in every city in the United States, large and small, and people that have always wanted to write, or they've been away from school for a long time. Do you think that these courses are they uh, are they good for American writing? Are they helping American writing? Uh, it's not that it's not that complicated. I mean, people get together in the way they do to have dinner or to have parties or whatever, but they get together to talk about their writing, which is important to them. No, I what didn't mean that. I meant really courses that are being taught. Well, I thought you were ta talking about outside of the uh, academy. Exactly, and that's I'm if, that's if what I'm, I'm, try I'm if trying I'm to respond to that. Pardon? I'm trying to respond to that. I'm saying people get together outside, outside of the university to talk about their writing, to read it to each other, to you know, to discuss it in a workshop, right? And, and um, they receive feedback. They have a chance to um, articulate their criticism, and they either improve their work or they or they don't. But no, I, I was asking, what do you think about this whole plethora of? creative writing courses that are, are being taught. It's great. <laughs> I think it's great. I really do. I think it's fabulous. I think that, that people writing is good and that people reading is good and that, that, that the, the more activity that we can have that concerns itself with language and words and readers and writers is good. That's what we're here about. Sir, um, two Some more of the questions. Then or what? Your question, your question, then okay. Reese. Uh, some of the panelists mentioned that, that with some of the uh, creative writing programs that there tend to be a certain type of writer that came out of it that you could sense you know, which programs they came out of. Do you think that's more a, um, because of the type of students that they're admitting in? Do you think it's because it's the pressure that the students put upon one another? Or do you think that's something coming from the, the, the professors or the program itself? I, I actually would like to answer that myself or at least amplify that. One of the ugliest stories about creative writing programs that I ever heard was from um, a short story writer whose work I published. Uh, she's real, real country people. She's uh, from uh, Appalachia, grew up there, has, I'm not kidding, a degree in nursing and a degree in journalism. And she um, got a scholarship to the Iowa Writers Workshop. And um, She's married, has uh, two kids, and she writes, a real person, and she writes about real country people. And she writes about these people because she knows them and she understands them and she likes them. And she'd read one of her stories 
in uh, one of the workshops, which are generally peopled by very smart cookies from very good schools, from Seven Sisters, Ivy League, Public Ivy High School. And she finished her story, and this smart ass in the class uh, made the first comment, which was, I am so tired of reading about white trash people. And folks, that's how you kill writers, you know? And what I've always, and this is one of my major worries, in fact, about creative writing programs, is that they take um, a, a stratum of society of very highly educated, pretty well-to-do, mostly white, mostly urban and suburban people who with gifts for self-expression. And that cuts out a very large segment of American society, which is increasingly uh, multiracial, multi-ethnic, and not doing so hot economically. And if the creative writing, if that is in fact where our writers are coming from, our fiction, at least, is going to be devoid of a lot of social information that we're going to need. And that's what I worry about a lot. To contradict myself for one second, I think that the best social novel written in the past five or ten years in this country was Clockers by Richard Price, who happens to have been a Stegner Fellow at uh, Stanford and, um, at, um, and studied at the Columbia Writers' Workshop which just goes to show you that writers come from everywhere and they do everything. Yeah, um, you know, Jerry, I, I think that uh, there are more than uh, uh, the elite programs. There are four or five hundred degree granting MFA programs Pro. now, uh, and they're all over the country. And, uh, and it seems to me that given uh, the uh, the literary norms these days that a, a Chicano writer, a black writer, a uh, Chinese writer, uh, is a leg up to start in terms of, of, of the, the interest that the writing programs have in, in finding students like this and putting them in the programs of breaking the, the sort of homogeneity of, of, uh, 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 of their students. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I just don't think that uh, I like numbers. I like lots of programs. I like lots of people writing. I think, you know, it's a much better way to uh, to lead your life or your, your leisure part of your life than almost anything else I can think of. And uh, it's true that 99% of the writers don't make it. Even in the very good workshops, you know, you know after the first things, the first stories finished, this one has a chance, and that one might have a chance, and the rest don't. I mean, they, they may become they may become teachers, they may become popular fiction writers, but there's going to be two out of 15 who have a chance. And it then is not so much a matter of talent, it's a matter of character, whether they can stay the course uh, until they're, they're ripe enough and uh, interesting enough to be, to be published. So that, you know, you, you can't, you, you know, writing is not vocational training. Uh, there aren't many slots open. Uh, and regrettably, in a way, that most of the programs bring in students that they know will not become professional writers.
but they've got to fill the seat. They've got to keep the program going. So I think it might be something close to these. Last question. Ma'am. Um, I was listening so intently, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> uh, I was uh, a guest at a gala opening of a magnificent place called the Writer's Place in Kansas City. And uh, it was featuring Poet Laureate of the United States, Mona Van Dien. Uh, this place is uh, supposedly going to be the Midwest Center for the Literary Arts. And there were like 200 people there, and about 50 of them brought books. And they would like to receive your books. So I'm going to leave the address with Pamela. And whoever wants to send a book, should send it because they are opening a library. Sure. And this is uh, for poetry and other writing. I thought I'd share this with you. Thank you. Okay. All right. Um, Okay, really quick. <laughs> Have any of you used or read the literature in Solstein's creative writing software program that's for Macintosh and IBM compatible programs that's being used in some creative workshops out here? That's a different kind of creative writing program. <laughs> yes, it is. It's one I've never seen before, and I wanted to know if any of you had, had opened the application and seen it and seen how it works and if what, you, what were your reactions to it if you've used it. Please say no. What do I plan to? Yeah. No, I think the answer is no. There, there is a list of 50 key, tool, key techniques to what makes a good novel. And it <laughs> I find this I didn't know absolutely didn't terrifying. And on that note, thank you.